Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from ABV through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season 3. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. For those of you who are new to this podcast, I'm a dermatologist in Halifax that works full-time academic. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside of your centre, and this podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. And one of those experts is Dr. Mark Kirchhoff. Mark is the Division Head of Dermatology in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa and the Ottawa Hospital. And in addition to all the clinical stuff that he does, he also has a PhD in immunology. I'm sure many of you have heard Mark talk about a variety of different topics, but today he's here to talk to us about hydradenitis suppurativa. Mark, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Carrie. It's good to be here. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to have you. You know, to be honest, I probably could have asked you to talk about a whole bunch of different things, but I certainly have heard you talk about hydradenitis before, and I thought your approach is pretty pragmatic and and, uh, makes a lot of sense, and I thought residents across the country could probably benefit from, from hearing from you. Well, I'm happy to be here. So let's dive right into HS. I really think it's getting a bit of a boom in terms of interest from uh, diagnosis to different therapeutic options. So let's take a question from a dermatology resident. You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Pantea Shiagi, a dermatology resident at the University of Toronto. My question for Dr. Kirchhoff is, what made you interested in HS, or is it just something that landed in your lap because you kept seeing it clinically? Uh, A little of column A and a little of column B. So um, just a background story, I did my residency in Vancouver, uh, where I actually have to admit that I didn't see a lot of HS during residency, Um, perhaps something to do with uh, the fact that you know Vancouverites are known to exercise and be healthy and <laughs> all sorts of reasons. Potentially, there's a different ethnic composition um, that might play into the prevalence of HS. But I really didn't feel that I saw a lot of HS. I did see you know a few cases, and they were difficult cases. And at that time during my residency, we didn't have a lot of good treatments. It was just antibiotics, antibiotics, and more antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I started my practice. I was recruited to Kingston, um, working at Queens and I suddenly uh, had this large cohort of patients who had HS and I was like, Oh, this is new. I'm not sure how to treat this or what to do. Um, so I had to become interested in it because the patients were there and and they needed help. Um, and then in my first year, uh, Adalimumab was going through the final approval stages for uh, hydronized supertiva. So we had a new approved medication. And, and so that also was something that I could help patients with. And then I began to understand the immunology and try to do research. Um, we did a survey on the patients in Kingston. Um, and now we're doing uh, several uh, systematic reviews here with uh, some residents in Ottawa. And so it really grew from from seeing it clinically uh, at a higher level than I was used to in residency and not knowing what to do, right? There's a frustration mm-hmm. often, and I'm sure many clinicians feel that when they're tra- trying to treat HS. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair point. I think that's probably how a lot of people end up learning more about an area specifically based on having to. 
Um, I find since when I first started practice, a lot of people didn't recognize HS like referring physicians, you know, they'd kind of just say this person has recurrent boils or whatever. And, you know, people would come in and show you their armpit and it was just covered. Um, And so I think that recognition has improved, but I find sometimes with non-senior derm residents, sometimes classifying hydratiditis um, or, you know, scoring it or describing what you're seeing can be a bit of a challenge. What do you tend to use in your practice to kind of fit people in? Like, are you Hurley stage? Are you high score? What, how do you, what do you do? Uh, Yeah. So, yeah. So the, the evaluation of a patient with HS, obviously you have to evaluate location of lesions, uh, type of lesions. Generally, we we classify you know lesions as uh, inflammatory nodules, abscesses, and draining fistulas. So those are sort of the big three. But really, there's a whole breadth of different types of lesions that can occur: comedones, for instance, scars. Um, so we we tend to focus on those three, and and that's because they are really the ones that have major impact, I think, on patients' lives. You know, um, the nodules and abscesses can be painful. There can be pressure associated with it. There can be infection associated with the fistulas. And when they're draining, there can be smell associated with that. So those are the ones that we tend to score. So I, um, because of reimbursement criteria, we have to use the high score. Um, but the high score easily adapts to the IHS-4 scoring, which I prefer. Um, because it's more dynamic. Um, Mm -hmm. The high score is a yes, no, basically, you know, high score 50, as it was defined in the clinical trials for adalimumab is you either achieve it or you don't. Um, And and that really doesn't tell us about dynamic changes, right? I mean, if you achieve a high score 49, um, you have not achieved a quote unquote high score um, 50. and so you would fail, but that person might have a good experience and might be better than they were previously. And so I prefer a more dynamic process. So the IHS-4 score works uh, by looking at uh, nodules, abscesses, draining fistulas. You score the nodules as one, the abscesses as two, and the draining fistulas as four. You add those up, times it by how many lesions there are in the body, and that gives you a number. Now... I think one of the things our listeners may notice is that this probably varies regionally. So um, in Nova Scotia, we don't have to calculate uh, the score specifically. We can still utilize, you know, Hurley stage two, X number of nodules, X number of draining fistulae, but you don't actually have to calculate the score. So I suppose that could be regionally variable. But um, I I like that idea of using something that's more dynamic because to your point, hydratinitis can flare and settle. Yeah, and it also gives us a way, you know, how, because we have not found a cure for this disease. Mm-hmm. And so often you'll give a patient a treatment with who has HS and you'll ask them, you know, are you better? And even though, you know, you may see clinical improvement with the treatment, they may not feel better. And so it's important to encourage them along this journey. Uh, and so if you can have a quantifiable output that you can say, well, look, based on this coring system, you've actually done a lot better and show them the results. I think that's encouraging to them because a lot of the patients are very frustrated. Mm-hmm. They've, they've undergone numerous treatments and, you know, on and off therapy, uh, maybe had lancings that were done in the eMERGE and it's just a constant battle with the disease. And so yeah. if you can show them forward progress, I think it helps them a lot. Okay. Let's actually take another question from one of the residents right now. Hi, Dermalogs. 
My name is Christina, and I'm a dermatology resident at Dalhousie University. My question for Dr. Kirchhoff is, when you're diagnosing HS, do you use clinical photos, or do you ask patients to take photos to use as an objective measure? Thank you. Sometimes. Now, uh, obviously, HS can affect areas that are more sensitive to right. photography, and that becomes an issue. So I, if, if, you know, if it's an axilla and there's not really an a concern about that, um, then fine. But if if it's inframemory area or if it's a genital area, then I, I really don't ask if I can take photos unless there's a real clinical need or clinical reason. Um, these patients are already sensitive to, you know, involvement in the medical system. And if you're asking to take photographs, um, and the way we do it in our, our hospital is we actually have a, an app on our phone that allows us to take photographs, put them directly in the chart. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, we um, we definitely don't have that uh, yeah. on the east coast here, but we do have a lot of HS. So, uh, but to your point, yeah, that it, it can can certainly be a challenge. I just thinking about objective measures, but I guess the other thing is to your point that uh, objective measures aren't always what's most important for HS, and you know, pain and drainage tend to be two huge issues that I see. What do you see as being most impactful? I guess on patients' quality of life. In your practice, yeah, I think those two things—pain, uh, drainage—we um, also, when we talk to patients, itch is actually something that is often ignored. Yeah, good um, point. But itches come up as a as a, as a strong um, factor that has a huge impact on their quality of life. Um, we know that from other conditions in, in dermatology that itch can, you know, lead people to uh, depression, suicide, uh, and so it's important to th- ask that as well. So pain, itch, smell, drainage, um, those are the ones that really have an impact. You touched on the that concept of um, how much it can impact patients and what we we certainly know that there's a lot of comorbid um, anxiety and depression substance use that can be associated with severe HS. Do you tend to screen for that when you're first seeing a patient, or do you do you kind of wait for that to maybe come up in conversation? What what like so? I guess I'm just thinking around. Okay, you're doing the clinical stuff, but when you're first seeing these patients, what other kind of questions are you asking? Like, are you screening around? Um, psychologic symptoms are you asking them about you know ibd symptoms what's on the rest of your history i definitely ask about comorbid conditions i ask about a history of uh, depression or suicidality Um, i ask about family history of ibd or personal history of bowel symptoms Um, uh, spondylar arthropathies are also very prevalent in this population Mm -hmm. so i asked about joint pains I think those are probably the major things that I that I look for. But yeah, definitely on on screening history, you will ask about comorbidities, metabolic uh, syndrome, another thing we uh, ask about mm-hmm. diabetes, PCOS, PCOS, probably. yeah, exactly, hirsutism, yeah. Okay, so let's let's kind of think about your treatment algorithm a little bit because I think that's probably where a lot of the meat of our conversation can be. So you've identified a patient, you think they need treatments, or they're moderate. Um, let's just say they're sort of a moderate, uh, least severe HS patient. How do you approach treatment? Um, and I guess probably you'll say, well, it depends on the patient if they're male or female. So for the for the purposes of uh, of conversation, let's start with a 27 year old female. Um, who's actually otherwise healthy and doesn't have all of the risk factors that we would expect for some of the HS. Now, that's actually side note, side note. 
I personally think there's multiple types of HS because you certainly see it in patients that maybe do smoke or, you know, are um, overweight, but you also see it in patients that literally have zero risk factors that, that are traditional. Do you, am I just making this up or do you think? No, I totally agree. And, and the, the, the big HS researchers have published and proposed numerous classifications for HS. Um, often they're based on how their morphology um, is. So do they have, you know, comedones is the follicularly centers is a scarring subtype Mm -hmm. is associated with a a syndrome. Uh, I actually tend to favor outcome phenotypes. So what that means is, you know, my goal ultimately in this situation is to make a patient better. And if I can find those treatments that will make them better faster, then I, I think that's an important tool. Otherwise, classification doesn't really serve a purpose uh, in the clinic. And so I always ask, well, what what aspects of the disease uh, or what aspects of that person are contributing to the disease? And then how can I appropriately target that? So, for example, mm-hmm. if, uh, if you have this female patient that we're hypothetically treating, I'll ask about flaring with menses, um, if there's any hormonal uh, uh, conditions that have made their HS worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they have history of acne? Because that can tr- lead me more down a follicular occlusion, um, perhaps a sebaceous process, uh, perhaps a apocrine process where we want to switch off some of that with maybe a retinoid. Um, um, if there's an element of PCOS, then we might think about spironolactone or metformin mm-hmm. or something in that nature. So I think you, if you un- identify those comorbid things and things that may be contributing to the disease, then you can provide treatments to those. And uh, I, I tend to find that works well in the clinic. So you'd have sort of a multifaceted mental algorithm where you're kind of going down based on what you're seeing and the other considerations for that patient. Yeah. Sort of, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, so let's let's take our let's take our female patient. Um, let's say she does have some perimenstrual flare, uh, always at the same point in her cycle. Um, she tells you that she's previously been given sort of you know Keflex for a week at a time. She had some injections or INDs. Um, how do you? And she she's otherwise healthy. She's taking other medications, um, and she's not planning on any impending uh, pregnancies in the near future. So, how would you? What would be kind of your, how would you build up a treatment plan for that patient, assuming, you know, access is equal and that let's say they have a great drug plan for purposes of our conversation. <laughs> all right. All, all these things that yeah, we have to think about. And so for the purposes of our conversation, how severe is this person? Like, do they have inflammatory nodules? Do they have abscesses? Are they all over the place? Or We'll say a little bit of both. We'll say a couple okay. of, uh, maybe a couple of small fistulae, you know, maybe six to eight nodules, oh, four okay. different body sites. Um Few so inflammatory we're the, papules. We're in the severe category. Yeah. The first thing we have to do with HS often before we can access a, any other treatments is, is do a good trial of antibiotics. Right. I think the payers require that. As such, I tend to start with that. Um, and depending on what experiences they've had previously with antibiotics, I'll either pick uh, you know, doxycycline or clindarif uh, based on the studies that have been done previously and I'll trial those uh, for three months. Um, 
in this patient that you're proposing, you mentioned a flare with uh, hormonal changes. And in that case, I will also uh, provide a birth control, um, OCP, uh, avoiding progesterone because there is evidence that progesterone can make this worse. And then I'll assess after three months and I'll say, how did that go? In the case of using a tetracycline or say you're going to use doxycycline, what kind of dosing do you tend to utilize for HS? And is it the same as what you do for acne? Because I, I tend to use a bit more. Yes, I agree. I use more for HS, especially if I'm doing a trial. I would like to give it the best opportunity to make that patient better. And I do find it's a more difficult condition to treat than acne. Um, so I do 100 milligrams BID. Okay. Uh, in acne, I will usually do 100 milligrams once daily, of course, depending on how severe they are. Mm-hmm. I, I do like a lot of isotretinoin for my acne patients. And, oh, yeah, same here yes, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so it's really the rare acne patient that I will keep on or put on doxycycline. But if I am, then I will do 100 milligrams daily. Um, and I also use doxycycline for rosacea mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and for perioral uh, dermatitis as well, periorificial dermatitis. Yeah. And I think the teaching point uh, for the residents would be just, you know, because sometimes they'll say, oh, you know, doxy and then 100. And I still actually use 100 BID for HS because I think it needs a little bit more oomph. Yeah, and we, we see that also from uh, progressive studies that show, you know, now we're getting into these combination of uh, big antibiotics and putting in pick lines. Ertapenem has now yeah. been identified as the big rescue therapy. Uh, and so it seems that the, the stronger antibiotics have better efficacy. And so you want to give the best dose possible when you're, when you're, when you're trying to treat these patients. I know when you, you brought up ertapenem, so I'll just touch on it now, but it's one of those things where I have a feeling that if I, you know, I actually never have really utilized ertapenem. I know it's always discussed. I think perhaps my ID colleagues locally might have a little uh, meltdown if I tried to use ertapenem for HS, but uh, have you had much experience using, using it? Usually what happens is a patient will get admitted with a severe flare of HS right. okay. and, and then yeah, ID will become involved um, because the eMERGE doc calls them and you know they've swabbed because that's what eMERGE docs, they're like, oh, well, it must be <laughs> infected. So they swab the area, it comes back with all sorts of uh, bacteria and and then the uh, ID doctor's like, oh, okay, well, you should give her to Penham. And so I've had several patients who have started or depend in the hospital when they were admitted. And then I've seen them in outpatient basis and I've encouraged them to continue it. Usually they want to pull the pick line as soon as possible when they get discharged. And I say, well, mm-hmm. let's, let's wait a moment. The other thing that I've recently come to learn is that you can give Ertapenem IM. Oh, uh, yeah. So this is a way I actually encourage people to access this. If they, if they have a person who needs rescue therapy with ertapenem is potentially, and I've, I've had two patients now who've gotten ertapenem IM and the pharmacists are more than happy to administer it. So, mm, uh, there you go. Uh, yeah. Hot tip. I've actually never, I didn't even know you could get that. So there, yeah. there you go. Look, I've, yeah. it's made it worth my while for today. I have learned something. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. I've already learned a few things. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now let's go back to our hypothetical patient. You've done yes. your three month trial. Mm-hmm you know, they're marginally better. Where are you going to, and, and, and they, um, no, I'm not going to complicate it. They're, they've done marginally better. Where, where, where are you going now? Yes. So I will ask the patient, um, you know, how, how do you feel you are doing now? And if they're marginally better and still unsatisfied, let's say they still have draining areas, uh, still painful areas. Um, 
I will I will usually quickly move to a biologic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do find that if somebody is severe, I would like to get them on a good anti-inflammatory treatment mm-hmm. uh, as soon as possible. Uh, so I will anchor that with adalimumab based on the trial data. You know, this is the indicated drug, and that's where I'll go. So then I'll start that process. So from a, a trial perspective, just to kind of get the residents to know what a good so i've heard you mention before you know pioneer study um is that that sort of a hot point the resident should be aware of maybe yes uh pioneer one and two (laughs) there you go i you know i am an examiner for the uh, the college exam so i can't i can't give away talking about sorry i shouldn't have that's yeah. all right. That's all right. So, but uh, practically but I do, speaking, that's practically good, speaking, I think yeah. it's important yeah. to know about Pioneer One and Two. The they are the um, phase three trials that did lead to the approval of adalimumab for hydranase suppurativa, and so it's important to know the data, know the outcomes, because also when you're talking to patients, you want to give them an oh, idea. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Right. You, you you can't just say, well, yeah, this is approved and it's going to be. Super awesome. And, Here uh, you go. Yeah. And so you have to tell them, you know, well, what does that mean? What does super awesome mean? How, how good is good? Um, and, and so you have to sort of give them, you know, say, I, I don't know what you tell your patients, but I say, you know, because a high score 50, I say 50 to 60% achieve a high score 50 approximately. It goes up and down a bit. Some, if you combine them and you get maybe a little bit higher, 70% in some of the open label extensions, but uh, generally speaking, 50 to 60% um, high score 50. See, here's where my street derm comes in, because I don't necessarily quote, I'll just say, you know, the vast majority of people that that take this, they got less pain, less drainage, it really seems to help over time, but it's a bit slow. So, you know, compared with what we use for psoriasis, we're looking for some modest improvement in the first three months. And then if you're getting better, that sort of... um, uh, going to make me feel positive that you're, or sorry, feel more optimistic that you're going to improve in that six to nine month period where I'm really looking for, for that improvement. So, um, I, I agree. That's a very, that's a very good practical approach. Um, I think, uh, for the residents, it's probably important to know (laughs) not only the practical approach, but also the numbers that that might be behind those practical approaches. Absolutely. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with you on that one. And it's always you, you want that too, because if a patient says, well, because there are patients who will say, what does that mean? You know, what what did the trial look like? What do they compare it to? And so you do want to have, you know, at least at a high level, because um, I, I try to make sure I read all the stuff, but my ability to keep the details is uh, slipping as I get old. Um, so let's say, so you're doing adalimumab, I'm assuming you're doing the weekly dosing per recommendation. Yes, the every every other week dosing did not uh, show a positive outcome in the trial. So See, you need there the, you go. Yeah, you need trial the every data. week dosing. Yeah, Doctor Kirchhoff comes in for yeah. the win. Mm-hmm. If you so, how do you tend to optimize adalimumab before you move on? And if so, you oh, just absolutely double dose and, it, reinduce. Yeah, as I mentioned, it becomes the anchor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obviously, if the patients have no response whatsoever, no improvement, then I'll say, this is not the drug for you. Mm-hmm. And then I'll move on down the biologic ladder. And everybody has their own approach. Uh, generally speaking, my approach after adalimumab is high dose infliximab. Mm-hmm. Recent trials showing good success with uh, 10 milligrams per kilogram every four weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if that fails, then I move on to the IL-17 inhibitors, which are starting to show 
good results and will likely be approved in the coming year for this condition. Um, so let's move back a step and say adalimumab has had some success. Yeah. Uh, I will then again talk to the patient and say, you know, are you happy? What can we do? What can we, if we need to change something, um, updosing uh, mm-hmm. does become a consideration. So 80 milligrams every week. Um, you can even go higher than that. Uh, now with the advent of the biosimilars, we're having more access to therapeutic drug monitoring. Mm-hmm. So you can actually measure the, the drug levels. Um, it's going to be and, a question, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and then based on that, you can adjust dose as necessary. Obviously, it becomes difficult with payers and you know with the drug manufacturers and if they're willing to cover these high quantities of the drug which is which is why in Flixmab at least I you know I have more success it's not you know if you look at IBD dosing 10 milligrams per kilogram every Q4 weeks is uh, not out of the realm mm-hmm. of possibility mm-hmm. but you know getting something like 320 milligrams of adalimumab every week might be a, a bit of a Get, touchy subject a bit of a, yeah a challenge when it a comes challenge, to the, yeah, the money's exactly. piece for yeah. sure. So that's uh, that's where I go. Uh, so then, and if the then I updose, I will also add. So I'm an, an additive person. Mm-hmm. Again, I talked about those different phenotypes of the patient. Uh, so based on that information, I might add uh, different therapies on top of the other. Uh, I might add a, a retinoid. I might add an antibiotic. I might add another anti-inflammatory like uh, methotrexate or cyclosporin. Um, we know that adding methotrexate to adalimumab increases the drug levels, and so that's uh, likely beneficial for the patient. Um, obviously, you always add topicals, and you talk about weight loss and smoking cessation and lifestyle mm-hmm. modification. But that's the way I view it. I view it sort of as an additive process, and you sort of layer the treatments on top of each other. Um, what, when, or who are the patients that you consider adding in metformin to? Yeah, so if I feel that a metabolic phenotype uh, is present, um, if there's a uh, high BMI, um, if there is that PCOS component, mm-hmm. if there's you know family history of diabetes, um, if there's I've seen patients who have acanthosis nigricans, they're not they don't have diabetes yet, and there's you already see that early on. Mm-hmm. That's where I, I, I say this is going to be a good uh, treatment for you. And do you start with the sort of traditional 500 BID for metformin? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay. 500 BID. And then I obviously GI side effects are sometimes a concern. And so I titrate up or down based on that and how well they're tolerating it. Um, yeah. And so will you, it, it sounds then you use metformin for both um, uh, male and female patients. I do. Dep- perfect. Depending on phenotype. Um, I've heard some people talk before and I feel like there was a sort of little blip about zinc supplementation and zinc deficient patients um, with HS, females in particular, um, and the ability for me to give that reference is extremely limited at present. But have you, do you use zinc supplement? Do you think there's any cred to that? I know you always know the science. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Uh, zinc, what, oh, zinc. Nay nay. What, what do I think? You know, it's everything in that we do in dermatology is a risk-benefit analysis mm-hmm. at some level. And, you know, what's the risk of zinc? Again, GI upset, nausea, you know, is that a big deal? Probably not. Uh, is it going to have a benefit in everybody? No. Is it going to overcome a severe disease? Is it going to replace adalimumab? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it, again, it's one of those things you can add on if something is not working. And I often have patients saying, you know, what, well, you know, and there is that data to show that people who have HS do seem to have lower levels of zinc. Um, 
but they generally appear to be uh, low in a variety of vitamins as well. If you look at the studies, um, vitamin D as well. And, and so you could think that supplementation may be important. Zinc itself has, has been known to have uh, anti-inflammatory properties. We know that people who are zinc deficient, they actually have high neutrophils. Mm-hmm. So it seems that uh, would make sense since we know this is a uh, neutrophils play a big important role in HS. That by supplementing with zinc, we might have some beneficial effect. And there's very small studies. Some retrospective analysis has been done um, that seem to support a beneficial effect uh, of zinc, um, but I would not call it high quality data. You know, level level C uh, data here. Um, so I use it with. With that in mind, okay. and I will use it as an add addition to a base therapy. Yeah, I, t- I tend to add it in for people as a kind of like, oh, it's not a lot of harm. I don't know if it's going to help, but you know, such is life. It's an over-the-counter supplement situation. Uh, possibly a more controversial area, or one that I'm not a hundred percent sure that I believe, but there's also been you know a fair amount of people I've heard speak on HS and bring up the concept of diet. Um, and not diet in terms of like, you know, um, healthy diet or calorie deficient to sort of achieve a weight based goal, but more this dairy pro inflammatory piece. Um, yeah. What do you, <laughs> I should mention actually, mm-hmm. cause you bring that up. This is good that you, it's going down memory lane. So when I first came to Queens, I had, so somebody so said, Oh, you should talk to Bill Danby. And I was like, who's this, who's this Bill Danby? I don't know who this is. <laughs> Uh, he contacted me because he was very interested to see dermatology return to Queens because he used to be the dermatologist at okay. Queens. Okay. And uh, as you know, um, Bill Danby was one of the early uh, clinicians who was interested in HS and mm-hmm. HS treatments. Mm-hmm. And he actually proposed that very early on that dairy was uh, related to uh, HS and that high dairy diets can make HS worse. And there was, again, early... You know, preliminary data, I would say small numbers who did dairy elimination and they did have improvement. Um, so take for what it's worth. Again, you can you can consider that. The other thing that's recently gotten some interest is uh, antibodies to yeast. Hmm. Um, so they've recently found a, um, a high level of anti-saccharomyces cerviciae associated with HS. And so some people also promoted the idea of limiting uh, yeast or uh, yeast containing products uh, in their diet. See, I, I would be, I'm, I'm, I would be very hesitant to bring up yeast to patients because I feel like I spend a bunch of time most days explaining to patients how they don't have yeast problems. I know. So, uh, it, does, uh, it, it, it does bring up a problem because I agree, you know, and then you have people who would say they have yeast associated with all sorts of diseases and should they eliminate their yeast and can you give me an antifungal systemic agent for, you know, um, I, I would say, Again, when it comes to diet things, the data is not uh, great. Um, but if you have patients who are looking for a treatment, uh, let's say they're adverse to, uh, we'll call it uh, invasive therapies or medications that may suppress their immune system, then that's again a thing you can propose and give to them. Because we're trying to create a therapeutic alliance with our patients. And if somebody comes to me and asks me about diet, I will 
tell them the data. I'll say, you know, there's not great data, but perhaps elimination of yeast and yeast-containing products or dairy products may be beneficial. I don't know. In you, uh, every person is different, but it's something to consider. Yeah, I think that's a fair... I What I'll often say to people that'll bring up, you know, oh, well, my this is better when I don't eat gluten or sugar or dairy. I'll say, okay, well, I mean, for you, if, if, it, if it helps, like I would, you know, recommend you do that from a population perspective. We don't really have anything that is robust, but, you know... For you personally, you, Mark, if you don't eat gluten and you feel better, I... great. Absolutely. I, I cite that Australian study where they blinded people on whether they think people who are gluten, who quote unquote stated they were gluten intolerant, and then they blinded them and didn't tell them if they were giving gluten or not, and they and they asked them, do you notice a difference? Huh. And the data, the data did show. <laughs> was that in like 1950 or is this recent? No, this was recent. Yeah, Whoa. gluten sensitivity has been around. It's <laughs> It's been a fairly recent identification, right? Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. So I, I quote that study and say, you know, it's, some people in the study may have felt better. Some people may have felt worse. I don't know which one you are. Uh, and ultimately, each person is their own experiment. Yeah. They can be the barometer of their own health. So if you want to try this, by all means. Barometer of your own health. I like that. Uh, you brought this up, and I just want to take a, a side note over to this whole concept of immune system, um, just when you're talking to patients from a clinical perspective. Because, I, I mean, I feel like this is coming up so frequently now in, in COVID times, and there's this idea of, you know, people that have suppressed immune system or, you know, who gets boosters, blah, blah, blah. And so I even had a conversation with a patient today. She said, well, you know, explain to me, you know, what's wrong with my immune system? This is in the context of something different like pemphigoid. But when patients that have HS and you put them on like an anti-TNF-alpha inhibitor, since you're, you know, you are an immunologist uh, at heart, how do you, <laughs> I have a feeling it's going to be a little bit more sciencey than the way I'd say it. But like, how do you, how do you broach that to patients? Or if they ask you about what it means from an immune perspective, like what, do you have a one-liner or something you tell patients when you start them on a biologic about, about their immune system, I guess. Yeah. Or, like, or if, cause them, yeah. you know, like sometimes you'll be like, Oh, this, this will help to you know decrease your immune system or like that part's overactive and this will kind of get it back to normal. But how do you, cause I feel like if I say this suppresses your immune system or this affects your immune system or it's autoimmune, it just spirals into like a place I don't want to be. Well, I, I, I say to patients, you have too much inflammation. You can see that by the redness and the pain, the swelling, that's inflammation, right? So we have to bring that down uh, to a normal level. Mm -hmm. And this is a way that we can normalize that inflammation to make you feel better. I, I like that because it's probably a little bit less about, you know, that autoimmunity or what yeah. what role your immune system plays other than just inflammation. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to let... We're going to go back over to the HS road here. All right. Um, <laughs> that was just a, that was like a side stop. Um, so I, when I was a resident uh, just a few years ago, um, I think the, it was like a two or three years ago. Yeah. Two, yeah. two to three times the number. Um, but HS, we didn't have adalibumab. It was still hard to die. You know, a lot of people weren't being diagnosed. I, I mentioned that before you get called about boils in the armpits. It really, it was taught to me at the time as like a surgical disease for which you could give some antibiotics, but really it was a surgical disease. And I think that really, I've seen that flip over the last decade. And, you know, where do you see surgery fitting in? Um, do you use it as more of an adjunct treatment? Like, what are your sort of, how does surgery play into your patients' practice, your, your patients? I think it's interesting historically, right? So I, I, I agree. It used to be a surgical disease. 
and the surgeons kept operating on it, and they did not have very good outcomes. <laughs> and they just kept and, coming back. And they, did, and they said, wait a minute, uh, I don't want to operate on this anymore. And so we've seen actually a lot of surgeons refuse to operate on it, mm-hmm. and that historical context still exists. And now what we're doing is we're actually reversing it. We're saying, wait a minute, we have now a medically controlled HS for you to operate on. Can you please operate now? And we're still trying to overcome that historical inertia. So I think, yes, you're right. It used to be surgical. Now, I think we need to optimize patients medically first before we consider surgery. Absolutely. There, there can, there's a higher risk of infection, a higher risk of dehiscence, uh, surgical complications, recurrences are all going to be higher if they're not medically optimized. And so that's, that's where I feel we come in. So once I have somebody who is well-controlled, then I will ask them the question. I will say, you know, is there an area that recurs often? Is there a lesion here that we can cut out to take away that nidus? Is there a scarring area that prevents you from moving your arm or causes you lots of pain, discomfort? Um, and that's a, at that point in time, I'll get a surgeon involved because they, they really don't like operating in you know an area that is purely discharging with lots of bacterial colonization um, and lots of inflammatory nodules. It's, it's, it's probably not very fun for them to, to cut into that and and try to make that better. While, you know, if we can optimize them medically, then at least we've reduced that burden and they will have a, a better go at it. And I feel, maybe this goes without saying, but I will just ask, you know, when a surgeon is gonna operate and they're cooled down and you have them on a biologic, I'm assuming that you would recommend they continue through surgery. I do, yeah, okay, I do that's, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, me yeah. too, I just. And I think that is reversing. It used to be a lot of surgeons were very concerned about operating on biologics. Mm-hmm. I'm getting less and less of those referrals, luckily. Um, so I'm happy about that. So I think they are, the data is accumulating, right? And there's, and there's more and more reassuring data to show that there's really yeah. no concerns with patients. I agree. I've had, surgery. I've certainly had less questions about that. Uh, they'll just operate and, um, yeah. So, and, and I think that's, uh, uh, that is how surgeries flip to sort of more of a, you know, this particular area is bothersome or this, this particular zone. Um, and, and certainly we have a few, we're very lucky in Halifax that we have a, a few surgeons who are most happy to operate on uh, patients and sort of work in that co-management um, strategy. So we're, we're yes, lucky we, here. Yes, we, we've found a few in Ottawa as well. So we're yeah. very lucky as well. I, I think it's really important to find those people who are willing to operate, um, you know, as opposed to referring everybody to Toronto for... <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a <laughs> ride to go to be, for yeah. something simple. And I, I mean, because I think, you know, I think part of it is... Um, optimizing the patient as best as possible and recognizing that sometimes having perfect um, perfect control is not feasible. Um, you know, some patients are still smoking and, and I recognize that affects um, wound healing as does as do other factors, including weight. But I think it's unrealistic for surgeons to assume that patients will be perfect when they arrive. And so that's where we've, we luckily have some people that will um, work with patients, you know, and within the best of their ability to say, uh, let's try to fix the spot up, you know, recognizing there are some risks, but um, having a patient fully optimized from a medical standpoint, not so much with the HS, I think can be problem that's just my side rant mm-hmm. yes you, you um, are you are correct in your ranting so i want to talk about two other things before i got like i could probably talk i could probably ask you 50 million questions but i want to talk about uh first pain control and then it's sort of like the, the next step so um i find pain to be a significant issue with patients and 
I don't, I'm wondering, do you ever add in treatment for pain? Do you refer for that? Do you, you know, cause the big problem for me here, I got tons of patients don't have primary care access. Um, I've referred to urgently for pain service. It's a three year wait. Um, and these are patients that I've kind of really combined treatment for their drainage is improved, but you know, they can't, it's difficult to sit or it's challenging to walk or, you know, sit for long periods. Do you have an approach to the pain piece or do you tend to defer that to other care providers? I mean, uh, yes and no. So pain treatment is obviously a stepwise process. Will I recommend uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, you know, Tylenol? Yes, I will definitely go down that route. Um, I've even gone as far as tramadol. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, beyond that, I am not comfortable getting into opioids mm-hmm. or fentanyl or, you know, blocks or things like that that are, yeah. I think are just beyond i find that if we are able to address the inflammatory nature appropriately um patients don't necessarily need those you know very strong treatments Mm -hmm. the other thing uh, i mean i have to put a plug in here as you know for uh cannabis products so hs patients are are high higher users than than the general population of of cannabis products um and so i think they do their own pain management as well to mm-hmm, be honest mm-hmm. yeah and did, didn't i think you did a podcast with kirk on uh I did. cannabis so yeah, i'm going to direct our listeners over to the gcms podcast series to hear more from uh dr kirchhoff talking to dr barber wow cross marketing um, there, there you go yeah i mean you got to do it we're all part of the cda family so yeah um so yeah, so so that was on my list. So we've covered that. And sort of two other things that I just, or one other thing that I kind of want to think about. You mentioned, you know, so you've done your anti-TNFs. Uh, you've combined, maybe you've added metformin or, or retinoid or antibiotic. You've done your, you know, um, and you fail. Or unfortunately, what's happened to a number of my patients is you've induced a paradoxical psoriasis flare, just for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, within the IL-17 class, and you, you mentioned that sort of, be your next go-to and that's where we're expecting to see some some data do you have a preferred molecule i've kind of tried them all oh tell um, me tell me what have you experienced <laughs> interesting <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll change we'll change the roles yeah, here right. i'll, I'll uh, interview uh, dr Purdy. I, and, today uh, on dermalogs today, dr Purdy. Here, <laughs> gary tells you what she does yeah. um i've actually also used a couple of i tried a il23 on a couple of patients just when yep. i've been able to get some um compassionate coverage and uh i'm gonna say that's been like a marginal at best but um uh, I, I have had a couple of people on secukinumab and one or two on ICSI and they're doing pretty well. Now I will say it completely clears up their paradoxical psoriasis. I feel somewhat like modest improvement in HS and it's maybe because it's not dose optimized. It's maybe I don't really, or they're just, you know, these are people that have already failed a couple of things. So it's a challenge. Actually, I, d- I said I've used all IL-17s, but I haven't used Broda, Bredalumab yet for that. And I'm kind of thinking, hoping, fingers crossed that, you know, when Bimakizumab is available, that it's going to be a nice choice. But uh, that's all go. to say, like, I don't have, and this is why I always ask you this when you talk about it. And you're probably cursing me from the stage going like, Never. God, Carrie, stop. Because um, I'm like, okay, well, I did that. And then I did that. And now I do this. And now what do I do? Because... 
those are the ones in clinical practice that, you know, the ones that respond to map, cool, yay. It's the ones that don't that you're kind of <laughs> scratch yes. your head about and sit there and think about for a long time. Your next podcast series should be, and now what? Or what next? L- literally, Question I mark. pitch that idea. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to yeah. do it myself. That's right. So, yeah, there what, you go. what now? What, what next? Now? What now? And you can just be like, you know, Carrie Purdy with her hands <laughs> up going like, what now? Um, That's me but, half the day. Every day. <laughs> what now? So... I will I will say that I have also tried the IL-23s and I've had limited exposure to the IL-17. Similar to you, it's hard to okay. get the drug. Yeah. What I will quote to you is that we are um, having data that is going to be read out likely next year, phase three results for secukinumab mm-hmm. and uh, phase three results for bimikizumab are probably a little bit behind that. Um, and I think those are probably the two drugs that will go forward in terms of indication um and as you've mentioned there ha- there is data to support the use of all the il-17s mm-hmm. the very impressively there was a broda paper uh where they had um, again a small number of patients but a hundred percent of them achieved a high score wow 50. Uh, those kinds of results make you very excited for this class of molecule uh, and so i think you know I think I agree. This is going to be the next avenue. Now, that's not the only molecule being developed. There's also very good uh, data that's coming out for anti-C5A, so anti-complement. Mm-hmm. So, so far, we've been looking at the adaptive. I'm going to throw immunology here because you've got to get you, know, <laughs> you can't back, help yourself back to basics. You know, it's just so. <laughs> uh, so often we you know we look at anti-TNF and anti-IL-17, and we think of these as targeting the adaptive arm of the immune system. Um, but I think there's going to be more and more interest in this in the. Uh, innate immune system, you know, targeting these neutrophils and targeting complement uh, specifically. Um, so I, I think there's lots of hope actually for this, for this uh, condition. We're, we're going to see a whole host of treatments come up in the future. JAK inhibitors are another class of molecules that are being Another, another favorite of yours, Dr. Yeah. Kirchhoff. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to admit, I think in general, it's a super exciting time to be in dermatology. I, I mean, I loved dermatology when I was training and we didn't have all these options, but it's way more exciting now to be able to offer people things and to know that other things are coming. And in particular, uh, for something like hydradenitis, you know, I think it's really great that this has become an area where people, you know, or c- companies and, and pharma has been interested in so that we can, you know, really improve the quality of life because it, it really does impact patients. And um, so I, you know, I'm overall excited, but uh, maybe I'm going to, I just scribbled brodalumab for my next mm-hmm. trial. I, I, the person, the people I do feel bad for is, is pharma, as, as, uh, as strange as that might sound. <laughs> what? But, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a whole host of treatments that are, uh, going to be dropped, you know, yeah, uh, because sure. the market is, is going to become saturated. We are seeing so many trials. You mentioned the IL-23 inhibitors. Uh, there were early uh, studies for IL-23 inhibitors and HS, and those have been uh, stopped and not will, be, will not be going forward, right? So yeah. as an example, um, and that, you know, there may be patients who have benefited. And I know, you know, we have colleagues across the country, Dr. Gulliver, um, who has had uh, some success, Dr. Al Hussein, who has had success mm-hmm. with patients on IL-23 inhibitors. And for some patients, it, it's, it does work, right? Yeah. Um, but that's just the way the way the market is. We are, we are going to preferentially choose certain uh, treatments and move forward with those and others may be left behind. True. Well, yeah. 
I was going to say something profound, but really oh, nothing okay, came to well. mind. Nothing really did. So, uh, listen, thank you so much for chatting with me about HS and all of your insights have been invaluable. And, you know, I, I do think it was very practice affirming for me uh, because most of what you do, it seems that I do as well. So I'm now I'm feeling a lot better about that. But uh, mission I, accomplished. <laughs> we, we have we have we have done uh, good work here today. I'm happy to have participated. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And, uh, you know, when I do my what now, I- I'm going to get you back because usually you're one of the people that I ask, what, what would you do now? Yeah, so, what now? What, what's next? What's next? What's next? So thanks again for joining me. Uh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm looking forward to see the actual final cut of this. <laughs> And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.